This morning we're continuing our journey through this book of Exodus. And we're going to begin in Exodus 4.18. Our short passage this morning, it's an unusual and a unique one. The narrative is really, it's, it's transitional as it moves us from Midian, where Moses has been for about 40 years, to Egypt. And in just 14 verses that we're going to read, we're going to come across seven different scenes in four different places. But even though it might seem disjointed and abrupt as we read, this is the Word of God. And through this book, God is speaking to us today. So would you read along with me as I read from the book, Exodus 4, verse 18 through 31. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Would you pray once again with me? Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you that through your word you reveal something about yourself to us. And we can, we can know you. We can know about you. Lord, I pray you would open our eyes to behold your glory, to see you in your, your goodness and in your sovereignty and in your kindness. Lord, would you help me to serve this people that are gathered, serve them to see you. Help me to get out of the way so that they might see you and trust in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've got a question for you. Do you ever take shortcuts? Now, I don't mean the bad kind of shortcut, like you're cheating. I mean the good kind. The kind that gets you where you need to go faster. 
often, not every year, but most years, uh, my family, Christine and I, we go down to the Outer Banks, North Carolina, and we'll take I-64. And I-95 is bad, but 64 can be just as terrible um, because the exits are few and far between. But on 64, like, I'll keep an eye on what's coming up, or Christine will because I'm driving. She'll keep an eye on the traffic coming up. And if we need to get off on an exit so we can skip all the stopped cars on 64, we'll do that. So it's a, it's a good shortcut. We take shortcuts because we know where we're going and we just want to get there. While we have this tendency, God doesn't. While we can be consumed with getting to that vacation or getting that new house or that new job or getting married or having kids or retiring and everything in between, God has different plans for us. God purposes to put us on a journey. His purpose for His creation and His people is His glory. So God's plans, they're, they're glory maximizing for God. So He doesn't just get us to where we want to go. He wants to teach us about Himself as we go. He wants to, to shape our thinking. He wants our hearts as we journey. So while He knows where we're going, and at times we might know where we're going, God's priority is how we get there. God's priority is the journey, not the destination. This is one of the great themes of Exodus. In Exodus, God delivers His people in the way that He delivers them so that He might make Himself known, both to Israel and to all the world. You see, we often live, we live in light of this self-defined reality. We determine our goals. We determine our priorities. We're driven by our desires and we can tend to try and fit God into these things. The will of God is for me to pursue my goal. We make a God in our own image when we do this. God wants me to have that job. God wants me to have that house. God wants me to be happy in the way that I define happiness. But God is not like us. God is self-defining. We don't get to say who God is. God is who he is. We saw last week, I am who I am. God is reality. There's nothing more real than God. He's the first mover, that, that which is really real. Everything in our lives must be brought into perspective, into the light of who God is. One commentator writes this, he says, what you or I or anyone wants to think about God doesn't change who God actually is. I heard somebody one time give an illustration, like if you want to say that the elephant only has two legs, like you can say that all day long, but that doesn't change the fact that the elephant has four legs. So what we think about God doesn't change who God actually is. God is not a concept that we can shape as we choose. God is. God is a reality. God is the ultimate reality. Now one of the reasons why I'm most excited about our study through Exodus is that it kicks against our tendency to define God in light of our preferences. It flies in the face of what we see as efficiency and expedience. Instead, it presents God as He wants to present Himself, as He sees, as he sees fit. It reveals a God who is at work in His own way in every detail, every moment along the way. God tells this story, the story of Exodus, so that his people might know him. And that's what we need this morning. We need to know God. This is not a detached or impractical study. 
It's not like, what do these people 3,000 years ago have to do with me? In fact, there's nothing more practical and relevant for us. Often we can think that we encounter Scripture, the most important question is like, what does this have to do with me? That's where we start. Where do I fit in with what I'm reading? We'll often open our Bibles in the morning and read that way. And while what the Bible has to do with us is vital and important, when we start with this question, we're starting in the wrong place. Where we must start is this. What does this text, this passage say about God? Who does this passage reveal God to be? We read and study Scripture so that we can know God. And it's in knowing God that we can make sense of who we are and how we are to live. So this morning, this is, this is the question we're going to be asking of our passage. What do we learn about God? As we think through our text, I'm going to highlight four truths about God. Four ways that God makes Himself known to us. Four lessons for us as Moses journeys from Midian to Egypt. Now just a heads up, as I go through these four truths, a few weeks ago I talked about inductive and deductive preaching. And deductive gives you the main point up front and then goes through it. All the supporting points. What I'm going to do this morning is inductive. And so if you're taking notes, like point number one is going to come at the end of point number one, the main point. So just a heads up. So we're going to kind of work through, work through the story and then we'll arrive at this truth about God. So now that you've got that disclaimer out of the way. Yeah. Uh, our first, first section we're going to look at is verses 18 through 20. We're going to look at these four sections as, as the paragraphs actually break down in our, in our passage. So first paragraph, verses 18 through 20. Now last week we looked at this incredible passage where God comes and, and reveals himself to Moses by speaking to him through a burning bush. He tells Moses what he is about to do in delivering his people, and he tells Moses in really specific detail the role that Moses has to play in it. But Moses, throughout this interaction, he doesn't respond too well. He offers excuse after excuse. Ultimately, he wants nothing to do with it. His very last statement to God couldn't be more explicit. In 4 verse 13, we read, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. God's response to Moses, I've already taken care of it. But notice where we left off last week, Moses never says, okay, like I'll go, I'll do it. Or, I'm ready. Our passage ended simply with God telling Moses, go, obey. When we get to verse 18, Moses now is, he's responding. He's taking the hard steps he needs to take to obey. He comes to his father-in-law Jethro and says, please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And we can pass quickly over that statement but notice what isn't there. Like what he says is, is kind of true, but it's not all true. Moses doesn't report that he, Moses in writing Exodus, doesn't report that he told Jethro that like the God of the universe came to him in this bush and told him that he, the bush that was on fire but wasn't burning, wasn't consumed. So the God of the universe comes to him, talks to him through this bush and tells him, hey, you're going to go to Egypt and save two million people. Moses doesn't say any of that stuff to Jethro. He like makes it a little bit more respectable in his mind. I think we're supposed to sense something of Moses' hesitancy in this. Like Moses is in, but he doesn't want to be too outspoken about it. He's obedient to God, but he wants to stay respectable before other people. So he tries to think through, all right, what's the most like peaceable way that I can bring this up? Here Moses is. He works for Jethro. 
Think about uh, the relationship between Jacob and Laban. Laban was Jacob's father-in-law, we read about in, in Genesis. And Jacob comes to him and wants to go, and Laban is saying, no way, like, you are my well-being. You can't go. And so he keeps him there. So this similar relationship, Moses and Jethro. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. Moses just wants to keep the peace, but he also wants to obey. So he's kind of trying to find this middle, middle ground. For me, I can face this temptation at times. Most of the time when I, had, when I travel, it has to do with ministry, with serving churches in some way. So I'll be talking to a neighbor or I'll be talking to some stranger somewhere. And they'll ask me, like, oh, wh- why are you traveling? What are you doing? And it can be a lot easier for me to just say, oh, it's for business. And then just be done with it. I can say it's for business and I, it's like, it's true. But that's not the whole truth. The whole truth might be, maybe it's going to be a little awkward for me. Maybe this person's not going to like Christians. Or maybe this is going to like end our relationship if I say what I'm actually doing. Maybe they don't know anything about church or music in the church. So I'm going to have to explain all this stuff, why I'm giving myself to strengthening churches through song. Man, that would be so awkward. It's like, that's where I go, but it's ridiculous. Maybe you face this sometimes. A customer or client might ask you, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Or what are you doing tonight? And you know you, I mean, every weekend you're in church. You gather with God's people. And you don't even mention church. We find ourselves in a place where we, we want to do what's right, and we are doing what's right. We're obeying. We're, we're gathering with God's people. But we also want to look good in other people's eyes. We want to kind of keep up this aura of respectability. That's what we see kind of in Moses here. He's hesitant. He's anxious. He's trying to put this question in just the right way so that Jethro isn't offended and he can still obey. But all of this anxiety that Moses feels, look at how Jethro responds. Go in peace. God is way ahead of Moses' anxiety. Because the next verse, verse 19, it shows God addressing Moses again. Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now we get a, a little bit more of a window into what was under Moses' fear, what was under this anxiety, this hesitancy. But before Moses even ever articulated it, God steps in and says, I've already taken care of it. So Moses obeys. We read in verse 20, he takes his wife and his sons and they go back to Egypt. Then look at the phrase at the very end of verse 20. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now the idea of somebody taking a staff on a journey for us is not very culturally relevant. But we've already been introduced to this staff once in Exodus when God tells Moses to throw it onto the ground and it turns into a serpent. We'll see this staff come up several more times as we make our way through Exodus. Now in the ancient Near East, where this took place, the staff, it served many purposes. It was one of the most important things one could possess. It kind of, it was representative of all that, that one had. And in one sense, it was a means of identification. And there would be carvings in the staff that made clear whose staff it was. If you remember the sordid story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38, it's Judah's staff that he leaves as evidence of who he is. The staff was also a means of protection. So identification was also for protection. It would be used to fight off threats to beat away any attackers. Identification, protection. The staff also represents authority. Normally when it has this connotation, the Hebrew word that we read in Scripture is translated as scepter. 
So staff, rod, scepter, normally always the same word in Hebrew. In Genesis 49.10, when Jacob blesses Judah, he says this, he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Look what Moses takes with him. He takes with him the staff of God. This is his identification, his protection, his authority. This is God's staff. God is showing Moses, Moses, wherever you are going, I will be with you. Now this is the truth that revealed about God in this initial, sex, in this initial section. Verse 18-20, through 20, God goes with us on the journey. We can slip into anxiety, into worry, into fear about the future, about what might happen if we obey, if we seek to be faithful before God. But God is saying to Moses and to us, I am with you. We saw this even last week when Moses comes and he asks, I want to find it because it's really good. Oh, when he, when he tells, tells God that I'm not, who am I to do this? God doesn't respond by telling him, oh, who you are. Well, you're this great guy, Moses. Like, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. No, he says, I will be with you. God goes with us on the journey. John Rippon's collection of hymns in the 18th century that he put out included a hymn, How Firm a Foundation. One of those verses says, Fear not, I am with you. O be not dismayed. For I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent, all-powerful hand. This is the first truth. God goes with us on the journey. It's the first thing we see about God in this passage. Second, we're going to look at the second paragraph. Our second section opens again with the Lord speaking to Moses. Here God reiterates His plans for Moses. Moses, as we have seen, he's a pretty fragile guy. He deals with a lot of doubts. Just think back to what we saw again in Exodus 3 and 4. God's speaking to him in a bush that is on fire that's not destroyed. Pretty crazy. But Moses' response isn't, who are you? It's who am I that I should do this? Like, that's kind of crazy. When God tells him all that he is about to do, Moses says, but the people won't believe me. So God gives him these three incredible signs. He, he says, throw your staff on the ground and it turns into a snake. And Moses picks it back up again and it turns back into a staff. Crazy. He puts his hand in his coat and cloak and pulls it out and it's leprous. He puts it back in again and it's clean, it's healed. Like, this is nuts. But Moses says, I'm, but I'm not a good talker. It's like, do you think that God who just turned your staff into a snake can't deal with your bad talking, your speech impediment? And then Moses is like, I mean, can't you just send somebody else? Like, isn't there somebody else that can go? God knows all of Moses' problems. He knows all of his inadequacies. He knows his weaknesses. He knows his temptations. He knows the hard road that he's about to put Moses on. And God comes to him and tells him, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to do all these miracles. But Pharaoh won't let you go. But Moses, I know this. Not only do I know this, I'm in control of it. This is my plan. God says that He will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will make him stubborn so that he can put on full display His power over all His enemies. That's what what God wants to show. We read this in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He will. That's what God is saying He will demonstrate. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. God has that kind of power. God is telling Moses, 
this will be hard, but I'm in control. Then he goes on in two remarkable verses. Verses 22 and 23. He says this. This is the Lord speaking. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And there are two things that I want us to notice about these two verses. First, in verse 22, this is the first time that God's people are called God's son. And it's not just his son, it's his firstborn son. In this culture, the firstborn son carried great significance. The firstborn son, he was given a greater inheritance. He was given greater responsibility. He was often the representative of the father and his legacy in the world. And God here is laying the groundwork for how he's going to work in the world. About the unique identity of his people and his unique relationship with them. God is not just some distant deity detached from the real experience of his people. He's their father. In Hosea 11.1, the prophet Hosea reiterates this relationship. He writes this, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea is talking about this deliverance when God calls his son out of Egypt. Now this phrase, out of Egypt I called my son, it may sound familiar to you. In the New Testament, Matthew records that when Herod sets out to kill every baby boy in Bethlehem, Joseph takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt. They flee to Egypt to be safe until they can return, until Herod's dead. And in Matthew 2.15 we read this, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. How wild is that? God tells Moses that Israel is his son. Centuries later, Hosea recounts that God called his son out of Egypt. And then centuries after that, Matthew writes that all of this was to point forward to the coming of God's son who would be called out of Egypt. God is working in the midst of every detail. Jesus came and became our representative. He stood in our place. We just sang about it earlier. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. John 1.12 says that for those who believe in Jesus, He gave the right to become children of God. This is true for us today, brothers and sisters. If we believe in Jesus, in His name, we become children of God. We become united to Christ in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. John again exclaims in his first letter, in 1 John 3, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. God's people are God's children. That's the first thing we should notice about these verses. The second thing we should notice about these verses is what God wants Moses to tell Pharaoh in verse 23. Let my son go that he may serve me. At times, people have wanted to use Exodus as a picture of freedom from oppression, which it certainly is, but that's not the whole story. God doesn't set his people free because oppression is bad. God sets his people free because they are his children. It's important that we get this. As his children, God has a great purpose for them. It's not freedom to do whatever we want. God doesn't bring freedom for freedom's sake. 
God sets his people free for worship. God frees his people from the tyranny of an evil rule from Pharaoh, from Egypt, for them to enjoy the blessing of life under God's rule. Now this is where I think we can let our identity sometimes as Americans sometimes distort our understanding of Scripture. In our culture, we make a great deal out of liberty. The freedom to do whatever we want to do, when we wa- what we want, when we want to do it. Now this liberty has become such a noble virtue that it's difficult to question it in any context. We start to think that any restriction, any rule, is a restriction of our liberty. You can't tell me who I am. You can't tell me what I can do or can't do with my body. You can't tell me who I marry. This is a free country. You can't tell me what to do, what to say. But sadly, what we find is that we have just changed the address of our slavery. We move from bondage of one kind under one tyrannical rule to another. There's only one God worth serving. One master whose steadfast love never ceases. There's only one who is ruling and reigning, compassionate and kind, preserving and providing. It's this God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who came to dwell among us in Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, who gives us his resurrection life. And by believing on his name, this is, this is our God, and we are his children. Now, In these verses, we see that God doesn't promise easy but He is always good. This is the truth about God that we should see. God doesn't promise easy, but He is always good. God is not saying to Moses, hey, when you go back, I'm just going to make it all easy for you. Like all the problems, they're just going to go away. No, He says, Moses, the journey is going to be hard. Pharaoh's going to oppose you. But you are my children, and I am always good. Jesus says in Matthew 9, verse 9-11, through Which one of you, if his son asks for him bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask of him? Our Heavenly Father is the giver of good gifts. God doesn't promise easy, but He is always good. Now section 3. This next section that we come to is one of the weirdest sections in all of the Old Testament. And if you were hoping that this morning I would be able to answer all of your questions, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Many of these questions haven't been answered for 3,000 years and they're not going to be answered this morning. There's a lot that we don't know about this section. We don't know who the Lord comes to kill. It's either Moses or Gershom, but we don't know who. Many think it's Gershom because... He's Moses' son. They say since God had just addressed his firstborn son and the firstborn son of Egypt, Pharaoh's firstborn son, that the hymn in verse 24, it must refer to Moses' firstborn son. This makes sense. But the problem with this theory is that, like Gershom, he has not been playing any part in the narrative. He was introduced back in Exodus 2, but he has not been seen or heard from since. Now, it seems highly unlikely that this pronoun, him, would be inserted here to refer to someone who isn't anywhere. Whereas Moses, he's been like the central character all along, and most recently as well. So I think it's likely that it was probably Moses that the Lord was coming to kill, but we don't really know. We also don't know how God was going to kill him. 
We don't know how Zipporah knew what to do to save him. We don't know why Gershom wasn't circumcised already. We don't know whose feet Zipporah touched. Was it Gershom or Moses's? We have no idea why Zipporah said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. No clue. And we don't know what she felt when she said it. Was this like a good thing or a terrible thing? Was she angry or happy? I don't know. There's a whole lot we don't know. But when we come to a passage like this where there's a lot that we don't know, what we want to avoid is making like this major point for our lives from what is unclear. But there is one thing that's very clear in this passage. Because Gershom wasn't circumcised, the Lord was about to kill someone. And it was likely Moses. A few weeks ago, I mentioned how we really have to read Exodus in light of Genesis. And this is one of those times where it's very helpful. In Genesis 17, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he tells him this in verse 10. I think we have this scripture projected. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Those who were not circumcised will be cut off from God's people. Now it's clear that for whatever reason, Gershom is not circumcised and he is outside the people of God. One commentator writes this, he says, God was not going to allow someone to get to Egypt alive without a decisive change in their circumcision status. You can't be part of God's people apart from this change. Now in his covenant with his people, God draws this line. He draws this line and on one side is grace and life. And on the other side is judgment and death. And Moses' household is on the wrong side of this line. There's no way to be among God's people if you're not living in accord with God's Word. God is going to put Moses to death because, as I heard one preacher say, although the Exodus may have been a job for someone with a speech impediment, it was not a job for someone with an obedience impediment. God can use us in our physical weakness. God can use us amidst our doubts. God can redeem our sinful past. God, God handles all of those things. But God will not use those who live in disobedience, willing defiance of His Word. God uses weak, messed up people all day long. After Jesus, that's all He has. These are the people God chooses to use to build His church. We are among them, the weak and the messed up. But what God will not use is those who reject holiness. I found Kevin DeYoung really helpful here. He says this. He says, We sometimes talk about weakness in a sloppy way. It's very biblical that God uses weakness, that He overcomes weakness, and that He's strong in weakness. But the weakness that God is happy to use is the weakness of our ability of our natural skill, of our pedigree, or of a broken history or a tarnished past. It's not the weakness of sin. Let us not talk carelessly about how God loves to use weakness, so I'll just keep on sinning, drinking, doing the porn, and treating my wife like I'm a big oaf. I'll keep doing those things, and you know, God just likes to deal with weakness. No. 
Well, He loves to save us from sin. He loves to forgive sin. He loves to let us put the sin in the past so that we can serve Him freely. But He doesn't just chalk it up to weakness. God calls us, but calling is not an excuse to be compromised. Moses had a mission to do, but he also had a character to embody. Moses had a mission to do, but he also had a character to embody. There was a 19th century Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, who once wrote this. He said, what my people need most from me is my own personal holiness. This is what God calls us to. He calls us to obedience. And this is what is illustrated for us in this unusual passage. If you're a dad and a husband, that's what your wife and your children need most from you, your holiness. If you're a child, that's what your parents need most from you, your holiness. That's what you need most from me and from Larry as your pastors. This is what we all need to give our lives to, give ourselves to, this pursuit of holiness. But notice where in the story this comes. God's already called Israel his firstborn son. Holiness is our call. This is very important. Holiness is our call because of who we are. Holiness is our call because of who we are. We are God's children. Our pursuit of holiness is not to make us children of God. We pursue holiness because that is what we are. We pursue holiness because we are children of God. This is truth number three. God calls us to obey without compromise. God calls us to obey without compromise. We don't reach in a, place, a place in our life where we think, well, you know, like I'm doing really well in this area. I'm really trusting God when it's really hard right here. So I have, if I have this relationship or if I watch this movie, if I click on this link or get angry at my kids, it's not that big of a deal. Like I'm doing really well. No, the call to us is always the same. Be holy as I am holy. God calls us to obey without compromise. This brings us to our our fourth section. Our final section brings us quickly from the journey from Midian to Egypt. We go right to God speaking with uh, with Aaron. Remember all that anxiety that Moses was feeling earlier in the chapter? What if the people don't believe? Please someone send someone else. God's already taken care of it. Alec Matir, he writes this. He says, the Lord's forethought anticipates our needs. The onset of any given need may take us totally by surprise, but nothing takes him by surprise. He has been there already. God has been there already. Here we see God is already, he's way ahead of Moses. Aaron is on the way. God has already spoken to him. Then in verse 29, the narrative shifts abruptly to Egypt. So they they meet, Moses and Aaron meet at Mount Sinai, and then all of a sudden we're in Egypt gathering together with the elders of the people. And Aaron speaks to them, and he does the signs before the people. Remember all that anxiety that Moses was feeling earlier in Exodus, Exodus 3 and 4. In verse 31, simply we see the people believed. Wow, that was really hard. All of Moses' anxiety and worry from heading to Egypt to addressing the people, it's made out to be absurd. When Moses was hesitant before Jethro, Jethro tells him, go in peace. When God lets Moses know that it's going to be hard, he tells him that he will be good to his children. When Moses is terrified of talking to the people, they just believe. Isn't this the way it often goes for you? We're so stressed. 
We're stressed out about the circumstances of our lives, so nervous about what's to come, all the unanswered questions that we have. But all that worry turns out to be worthless. Worry adds nothing to our lives. This is what all anxiety is in light of God's plans. Absurd. I heard one preacher say that anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. Anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. We run through every scenario, all the bad things that might happen. And sometimes we get to those situations, and it's worse than we thought. That happens. But when it's worse, have you ever told yourself, man, that was terrible. Like, I'm so glad I worried before. (laughs) Our anxiety gains nothing for us. It doesn't help us in any way, even when things go bad. But what we find is that most things aren't as bad as we think they're going to be. Like with Moses, things are easier than we thought. People respond better than we anticipate. And afterwards, we get a clearer picture of the absurdity of our anxiety. This is what anxiety is. It's absurd. It's crazy. It makes no sense in light of a God who knows all, who controls all, who rules over all. As we see in this passage, and this is our truth, truth number four, God takes care of every detail. God takes care of every detail. He is sovereign over it all. That money problem you have, that financial need you have, God knows it and has a plan for it. He's sovereign over every detail. That lump you feel in that place that you're really concerned about, God knows about it. God knows exactly what it is. That inconclusive test that you've undergone, God knows what's going on. That cloudy future, God already knows where you will be. Corey Ten Boom, she once wrote this. She said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We come before a God that we can know because He makes Himself known. God is the one who being wisdom, who's being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, all of these things about God, they're infinite, eternal, unchangeable. There's no end to them. You can't exhaust them. And they're never going to change. This is our God. This is the God who makes Himself known in Exodus. This is the God who makes Himself known in the Bible. This is our God. We can trust our unknown future to this known God. So how do we respond when we face troubling questions? When we doubt, when we suffer, when we are beaten down and we're tired? We look to Him. We look to who He is. Who God is is the most important thing about us. Look at how the Israelites respond in verse 31. Every once in a while we see like the Israelites do something really good. (laughs) And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Our response to whatever we face should be worship, not anxiety. Our response should be worship, not worry. Our response should be worship, not fear. Here we have the people of Israel. They're still working seven days a week. They're still gathering straw for their own bricks and making twice as many as they used to. They're still slaves in a foreign land. But they believe God. So they worship. In the midst of all that mess, 
They worship. And these statements that God visited the people and sees their affliction, they speak to God's loving care for His children. God pays attention to those who are His. He looks after them. He gets dirty with the details of their distress. This kind of attention from God, this loving care, it should lead us to worship like it does the Israelites. Because brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. He has visited us and He has seen our affliction in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what this passage it ultimately anticipates. When Pharaoh refuses to let God's children go, his firstborn son must die. God's establishing a pattern of a son for a son. If you abuse my son, your son will die. When Moses' life was threatened because of disobedience, it took the shedding of blood to save him. In Jesus, we have one who came as God's firstborn son, and he died in our place. In Jesus, we have the true Passover lamb who came and shed his blood for us. Exodus gives us a picture of a greater deliverance to come. It points forward to the one who will once and for all free us from the bondage of sin and death. A bondage far more severe than anything Israel faced. Thanks be to God for this deliverance because He has done it. And so we worship Him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? And as I pray, Van, would you come up? Father, we look to You to trust You to worship You because You are a God who is sovereign over every detail of our lives. And You are a God who is in control. You are a God who is infinite. You are eternal. You are unchanging. And so when we look to all the unknown problems we face, to our unknown future, we look to the God that we can know. And we trust You and we worship You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.